Hey, you're listening to the Bramley Baptist Church podcast. We're glad you're joining us to listen to this week's message. Whether you're starting your journey or looking to strengthen your walk with God, we believe that God will speak to you today. Let's get into the word together. Aren't there times in life when you just wish you had someone Maybe more experienced, maybe more mature, who would come alongside and say, hey, this is what it looks like to serve the Lord in this season. Maybe you've entered a new phase and you're saying, what does it look like? Where do I go? What am I doing? And you just had a a more mature, more experienced person said, hey, this is what it looks like to serve the Lord in this season. I remember I was uh, 25 years old when I first became a pastor and I had no clue what it meant to be a pastor. I knew two things, two things that I needed to preach the word and love the people. I mean, if you don't know what to do in pastoral ministry, those are the two things, most important things. Preach the word, love the people. But how I just wish I had like a, an older brother who would just come along and say, hey Dave, this is what it looks like to serve God faithfully as a pastor. I mean, there's a lot of things I, I learned the hard way. I bumped my head, I made mistakes. See, I look at James and I think I found that that's really how the role that James fills uh, in his letter. Like I just see James as this older, more mature brother, this older saint coming alongside of us and saying, hey, this is what it looks like to serve the Lord. This is what it looks like to serve God faithfully. Last week, James, uh, last week, James called us to do something that we all felt a call to do, to humbly submit our lives to God. It was a calling to submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. And, and the question that we may be asking is, well, well, Brother James, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to humbly submit my life to Christ? What does it look like to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord? I think that's the question uh, that James uh, dives into this morning. James, our brother in the Lord, he comes alongside of us. He puts his arm around us and he talks to us sometimes very pointedly, very bluntly. This is what it looks like to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord. So why don't we open our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 11 of chapter 4. And we're going to go through to, to chapter 5 uh, verse 6. I think it serves as really one section here. And, and, and James is answering the question for us. What does it look like to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord? What does that mean for my life? And so open your Bibles. I'm going to ask if you're able that you'd stand in reverence to God's word with me. I'm going to read verse 11. Uh, and as I said, we're going to go into uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version. James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a, a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered at the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What I've loved to come, what I've come to love about James is just how practical he is for us. He deals with the, with the theological, but he, he doesn't leave us wondering, how do we apply this to our lives? I think that's how we can best understand this, this portion of James here. I, I mean, I see chapter 4, verse 11, all the way to 5, verse 6, is, is really just one section answering the question, what does it look like to live in humble submission to Jesus Christ, to truly embrace him as Lord? Because that's what James was just calling us to do, right? You remember last week and just the passage before, James was calling us to humbly submit to the Lord. So let's just remind ourselves of that. Just skip back there uh, to chapter 4, verse 6, and, and hear the words of James. Hear the word of the Lord one more time. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So you get the point of reading those words. We reread them last week and the cry of many of our hearts was, yes, Lord, yes. I mean, yes, I, I want to humble myself before you. I want to submit myself, my life, my life to you. My, my desire, my longing is to draw near to you, oh God, to, to cleanse my hands and to purify my heart. Lord, I, I want to live in submission to you. And we're left with the question, what does that look like exactly? How does embracing Jesus Christ as my Lord, how does it impact the direction of my life? And I think James gives us three areas here uh, in our passage, three areas where this has direct impact. James talks about accountability. He talks about trusting God's will. And he talks about wealth. Three areas that if we're embracing Jesus Christ as Lord are directly impacted. And, and I don't assume that these are exhaustive areas, but I, I think these are major areas where there's a lot of overlap. What does it look like to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, it looks like accountability. Embracing Jesus as Lord, it means that we are accountable to him. And I, I get that from what James is talking about there in verse 11 and 12. Look there with me, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? See, I see the issue here as, uh, as accountability. Like, like who is accountable to who? And the command here is, is that we not speak evil against our fellow believers. And we get that because James repeats that word brothers several times in those verses. And, and brothers, as we've come to know, is James's favorite word to refer to believers, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this theme, this theme of, of, of not uh, uh, using our words wisely, I mean, that becomes a, a theme of James. Obviously, in this church, there's some war of words going on in this church. And so James is writing uh, to deal with that. And we know that because one of the emphasis has been how our faith in the Lord Jesus impacts the words that come out of our mouth, impacts our words towards our fellow believers. So, so if you have an issue with someone, you're not going to gossip and slander them. You're going to go and, and, and speak with them personally and, and, and with a desire towards reconciliation. That's what brothers and sisters in the Lord do. But here's what James says, that when we speak evil, when we slander, when we gossip or tear down another follower of Jesus, what we're doing is we're actually placing ourselves as judges as over and above God's law. What law is he talking about? Well, the, the law that says, love your neighbor. I mean, God has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, so surely our fellow believer, well, they're our neighbor. And so if we continue to, to violate that command, what our actions are communicating uh, is, is how we feel about God's law. Take Take this for this, for this logical conclusion here. If we continue to break the law of God, what we are saying is that the law of God, well, it doesn't apply to us. It applies to everyone else. But when it comes to me, God's law, it doesn't apply to me. I can do what I like. Think about this now. If you had a child, many of us do, you gave them a curfew, but they continue to come home well after that curfew. What are their actions saying to you? They're telling you that your rules, your law doesn't apply to me. I'm above your rules in this house. I don't need to follow them. That's what their actions are communicating. And James is saying, this is what we're doing when we constantly uh, speak evil against a, a fellow believer. Our actions are saying that God's law doesn't pertain to us. That, that we're saying that we are actually above the law. But embracing Jesus Christ as Lord, well, it means that we are accountable to him. That we can't pick and choose which of his commands apply to us and which ones don't. When Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, your desire, your aim is to live a life that is patterned by obedience to him. What do I mean by patterned by obedience. Well, well, ask yourself, can you live in perfect obedience to Christ? And I can answer that for you. The answer is no. In and of your own strength, you cannot live in perfect obedience to Christ. We, we all fail him. 
But if you looked at the overall pattern of your life, is there a clear trajectory of obedience? Like maybe you think of this as like a line graph that tracks the kind of trajectory and, and each point represents a, a point of obedience or, 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 or disobedience. And, and so maybe you have some valleys that you go through, but, but as you look at the overall chart, the overall trajectory here is that, that I am living a life of obedience to Christ. I'm embracing Jesus as your Lord. It's, it's accepting, it's, it's embracing the fact I'm accountable to him. I want to live in obedience to Jesus. And James' concern is that we are placing ourselves above the law. But his other concern is clearly that we are standing in judgment of our fellow believer. That's what he's getting at in verse 12 there. You see, he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, we're forced to ask that same question we asked a few weeks ago. This came up. Is James condemning judging altogether? Are believers never to judge another believer? And some would say, yeah, I mean, that's right. We're, we're never supposed to judge another believer. But, but then what do you do about the passages that call us to judge another believer? What about 1 Corinthians chapter 5? What do you do with that? where Paul calls on the church of Corinth to pass judgment on their fellow believer who is living in open sexual immorality. He's telling them to cast him out of the church until he should repent. See, there are times when you and I are called to judge the fruit that is in another believer's life. That when we have a, a brother or sister in the Lord who is living in blatant contradiction to God's word, we have a loving and moral obligation to address that sin in love. And, and the hope is that that brother or sister would repent and return to the Lord. But what James is concerned about here is self-righteous judgment. Again, placing ourselves above the law in the seat of judgment where, where God alone sits. In the seat of, of judging the state of someone's salvation. There's only one God, only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And that's not you and I. It's not for you or I to judge the state of someone's salvation. To put ourselves in the place of their eternal judgment. There's only one who is able to do that. But James's call here is for us to focus on our own salvation, right? You, you and you alone are accountable to the Lord. In verse 11, he says, but if you judge the law, he says, you are not a doer of the law. And that's what we should be focusing on, not judging the law. You and I are doers of the law. Our focus shouldn't be on whether or not others are obeying the law, but, but are we obeying God's law? The calling is for me to examine my life. And that's, that's not always easy. In fact, it's, it's way easier to point the fingers at others, isn't it? 
to notice uh, the glaring issues in other people's lives and, and not focus on what's going on in our lives. And so James is saying to us here that, that to live in accountability to the Lord is, is to stop judging the salvation of others and ensure that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Instead of examining the salvation of others, check your own heart. And that's exactly what what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 7 when he talks about judging, right? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a, a log hanging out of your own eye? You hypocrite, First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I mean, this is a great image, isn't it? We want to focus on that that tiny little speck in our brother or sister's eye, but we give no regard to this huge log hanging out of our own eye. It's just, it's a ridiculous scene, and it's supposed to be. The problem is that if you, you got a log hanging out of your eye, well, you can't see clearly. Your vision is obstructed to help your fellow believer, and they may indeed need your help. We think of this image and just get this picture of someone trying to walk over to help their brother or sister, and they're tripping over the log while they get there. Or maybe they get there, they got this log hanging out of their eye. While they're trying to talk, they, they injure someone. Isn't that, isn't that what happens when we... Try to judge others without taking into consideration what's going on in our own lives. And Jesus is right. First, focus on your accountability before the Lord. Deal with the log in your life. It may be that he's calling you to deal with the speck in your brother or sister's life. But first, you got to deal with that log hanging out of your eye. You, you personally are accountable to the Lord And that's what it means to embrace him as our savior. It's embracing the fact that I'm accountable to him. I I can't sit in judgment of anyone else's salvation. My my first job is to judge my own walk with the Lord. Here's the second area that, that James starts to deal with. And embracing Christ as our Lord means I'm embracing his will for my life. Embracing Christ as Lord is I submit to his will and not my own. I mean, I get that from what James is saying there in chapter 4, verse 13 and 15. Look what he says there. He says, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So James is giving us this hypothetical person who's making plans for their life. They're making plans to go to a a certain place and they're going to spend the next year of their lives there. And, And while they're there, they're planning on making a nice profit too. Now let's be clear, that's that's not the problem. James is not condemning making plans for your life. You should make plans for your life. It's wise. It's good stewardship. And, And neither is James condemning having a business and making a profit. That's not the issue here. 
The issue is this person is making plans and boasting about their dreams and boasting about their hopes and they have not sought the Lord's will for their life. They have not even invited him in or taken his word into account in the process of making plans for their life. The issue is this person is presumptuous. They're they're living for their own passions and their own desires. They're living to fulfill their wills and giving no consideration to the will of the Lord. But when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord, when he is your Lord, when you submit to him humbly, your life is no longer your own. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you embrace Jesus as Lord, you come to realize just how precious each moment of life is. James asked the question, what is your life? you're, You're a mist that appears for a little time, for a moment, and then vanish. Life is fleeting. It's brief. And suddenly, When you embrace Christ as Lord, the reality of eternity, it it means something to those who come to know Jesus and our priorities shift, our priorities change. It's no longer about simply living life with with my pleasure in mind, but, but our focus is on Christ and the life to come. Our focus when we embrace Jesus as Lord is no longer making much of my own life, but making much of Christ, of using every moment and every activity and every ambition and every dream and every hope to bring glory to his name and not my own. As the poet once said, "'Tis one life will soon be passed, and only what is done for Christ shall last. James is saying that when we make plans for our lives, it should not be our own will that we should be considering, but what is Christ's will for my life? Instead, he says, you ought to, to, to humble yourself and say, if the Lord wills, if this is what God wants, we will live and do this or that. I mean, is this not the example of our Savior, as he faced the reality of the cross and he knelt in the garden, he prayed in the garden, he was praying, Lord, if there's any other way, there's any other way that salvation could be accomplished and I don't have to go through with this. But in the end, his prayer was not my will, but your will be done. See, we assume that God's will is always sunshine and blessings for us. That God's will is always happiness, that we're healthy and wealthy and you know the rest. And and it's easy to embrace Christ as Lord when times are good and life is happy and the sun is shining. That's easy to follow the Lord. But to trust and follow him and submit to his will for your life, even in the seasons of darkness and challenges. I mean, that takes real faith to trust that his will is good and perfect and right, even when it doesn't feel like it to us. 
that he has a plan and a purpose even in the trials and the tribulations. That's what it means to embrace Christ as Lord, to embrace his will for your life. I mean, it just may be that God's will for your life is is that you're going to travel to that wonderful place and you're gonna stay there for a while. You're gonna make a great profit that maybe that is his will. But what if it's not? What if his will is not what you hoped? What if his will is for you to, to stay where you are? To make a job, to take a job with you make much less money but you can faithfully serve the community you live in and make an impact for his kingdom. What if that's his will for your life? And maybe the question you're wrestling with is, well, well, pastor, well, how do I know God's will for my life? I mean, I I get asked that question a lot. I, I find people spend so much time, so much energy trying to figure out God's will for their life. And, and if I'm honest, I think we often overcomplicate it. When we talk about God's will, there's, there's two sides. There's, there's his revealed will and his hidden will. There is his revealed will, and and those are things that he's clearly revealed to us. Those are things in his word, and it's not complicated, it's clear. I mean, you've got passages like what's going on in 1 Thessalonians, where, where, where Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pretty plain, pretty simple. This is God's will for you, that you rejoice in all circumstances and persevere in prayer to give thanks. This is God's will for you. And my point for you this morning is that if you are seeking the the will of God for your life, here's where it starts. It starts with his word. It starts with reading his word. This is God's revealed will for your life and mine. If we want to know what his will is, we we have to know his word because you cannot understand or know the will of God if you do not know the word of God. The two go hand in hand. So that's his revealed will, but there's also his secret will, his hidden will. And I think that's where so many of us struggle. When it comes to things like, who am I going to marry? Where should I work? Where should I live? Where should I go to school? How do I know God's will? We seek and we pray and we listen. How do I know it's God's voice and not my voice? See, when you and I come to a fork in the road with life decisions, I I don't think the standard changes. We filter those decisions through the truth of God's word. Our calling as a believer is not to spend all our time trying to figure out what God's hidden will is. Our calling as believers is to live in his revealed will and trust him for the rest. To obey God. Christ, to obey his word and trust him for the rest. If God gave us all the answers, well, it wouldn't be faith. And sometimes you just got to step out in faith. 
I mean, there's certain things that we are got to trust God for as we make decisions. And, and we make those decisions informed. We make them with, with wise counsel. We make them with educated, in educate, educating ourselves. And, but we seek to obey his revealed will. And then we trust him for the results. Let me, let me give you an example. So if you're, you're here this morning, maybe you're wondering, who is it that God is calling me to marry? Well, ask yourself, what does God's word say about marriage? Well, it says that if you are a believer, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. No matter how good looking they are or how nice they are. God's word clearly says what marriage should look like. He, he lays out clearly the calling of a husband and a wife. And, and so if you're dating someone or courting someone, and if they're not a believer and they're not having a desire to, to fulfill God's plan for marriage, and, then don't marry them. If we don't obey God's word... When we're dating someone, if we're making a, some other life-altering decision, we can't wake up five or ten years later and wonder why it all blew up in our face. If we want to know God's will, you have to know God's word. And then you bring every thought captive to his word. You, you filter your life choices, your life decisions, your direction through his word and a desire to honor him. And I am confident if you do that, God will bless the direction of your life. If we embrace Christ as Lord, we embrace his will for our lives. Here's where... Here's where James goes next. He says, if we are to embrace Christ as our Lord, it means that Christ is Lord even over our wealth. That's where he goes next. We, we see what he's saying there in, in chapter five, verse one to six. We'll read these verses. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So light and fluffy like James always is. But James' point in these verses is he wants us to know that if Jesus Christ is Lord, he is Lord even over our riches and our wealth. And we have to ask, start by asking the question, well, is James condemning every kind of riches and every kind of wealth? Well, and the answer is quite simply no. James is condemning a certain kind of richness. And it's right there in the text. Just look there with me. He's condemning riches that are hoarded selfishly. 
He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have lived in luxury and selfish indulgence and fattened your hearts. The problem isn't being rich. The problem is you're hoarding your riches for yourself and living very comfortably while there's others around you who are suffering. James is condemning this kind of riches, riches that have been gained by taking advantage of others. Right? He says, the laborers, the, the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you have kept by fraud, the cries of the harvester, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. The problem is that they're rich. The problem isn't that they're rich. The problem is they've gained their riches by taking advantage of people, by ripping them off and not paying a fair wage, not paying them what they're owed or, or dealing with them dishonestly. He's saying you've gained your riches at others' expense. James is condemning riches that have been gained unrighteously. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So there's clearly an issue in this church of, of either what was going on is that there was the rich who were oppressing the poor and there were people who were poor who were longing to be rich. And so James is writing first to encourage the poor who are being oppressed. And he's writing to encourage them and, and saying, uh, God is going to bring judgment on the unrighteous rich. Vengeance is mine, say the Lord. Be encouraged. Wait for the Lord. He will deal with those who are oppressing you unrighteously. But then he's writing to warn believers about the dangers of riches. That the riches of the world are fleeting and temporary. It's what he's getting at there in verse Two of chapter five. He says, you, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And the irony of these verses is, is anyone knows that, well, gold and silver, they don't corrode. In fact, one of the reasons that, that people uh, invest their money in, in gold and silver is that it's a, a safe and secure investment. But the irony is on purpose. It's an issue of where are you placing your trust? See, the dangers of riches and wealth is that our confidence, our assurance can be placed in our riches and our wealth rather than in Christ. And the warning here that James is giving is that while they might not pass away in this life, while, while your riches may do you well in this life, there will come a day when the riches of this world will deceive you, when the riches of this world will corrode and rust and be destroyed. And if you're not careful, you will be destroyed along with them. And you know what? James is simply echoing the teaching of his Lord. Jesus taught about money regularly. He said, for instance, this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
See, Jesus, he makes this connection. This is why wealth is, can be so deceiving. It's because there's a connection between our money and our heart. He's saying, you, you want to know where your heart is. You want to know what you love the most. Follow the money trail. Follow the trail where you spend your resources. Where does all your wealth go to? How much of your time and money and resources are spent consuming and gaining the things of this world? And how much of your time, money, and resources are spent storing up treasures in heaven? Follow the trail, he's saying, and, and you're going to find your heart. And the warning that Jesus gives is the same that James is giving. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. They will pass away. But invest your wealth Invest the, into the treasure of heaven. In other words, invest your wealth in the things of the kingdom. How much of your time, money, and resources are invested in the work of the local church? How much of your time, money, and resources in, is invested in local ministries doing God's work in our community? How much of it is spent in missions who, who are spreading the gospel across the world and, and taking it to places who have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ? See, if Christ and the gospel is what matters to you, it will show, Jesus is saying, through where your treasure is spent. So James isn't condemning being rich or, or making a profit. No, he's warning the dangers, the deception that rich, riches have on our hearts. And if Jesus Christ is your Lord, he is Lord even over your wealth. So then what do we do then? Well, compare the warning of James with the exhortation of Paul for the rich. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is to be prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What does it look like if Christ is Lord even over our wealth? Well, Paul says it looks like first not being prideful about wealth but humble yourself. It's, it's not placing your hope and your confidence in your wealth and your riches, but placing your confidence in God and, and recognizing that all that you have has come from his hand. And if our wealth has come from his hand, then Paul is saying we use it for his glory. We use what God has given us to do good, to be rich in good works, meaning we bless others. We're, we're generous as we support the work of God locally and abroad, and we're ready to share with those who are in genuine need. This is how we use what God has blessed us with for his glory and not our own. This is what it looks like if Jesus Christ is Lord even over our wealth. You know, picture James this morning 
as your brother in the Lord. Sitting down with you over a cup of coffee, talking with you as you're walking maybe down a, a pathway and saying, hey, listen, I, I know you, you have a heart to serve the Lord. I know you have a desire to honor him with your life, to, to humbly submit to his lordship. Let me, let me just tell you what that means. It means that if he is your Lord, that we're accountable to him. That the pattern of our lives is one of obedience to his commands. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, well, it means that, that, that what matters the most in, is, is his will for your life. You no longer simply live for your hopes and your dreams. You no longer live to make your name great. Your desire is to, to live in a way that glorifies his name. And if Christ is your Lord, it means he's Lord even over your wealth. Yes, even over our finances. And whether he's blessed us with, with little or whether he's blessed us with much, we, we use what he's given to honor him and his work and invest in his kingdom. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Thanks for listening and making us a part of your walk. We encourage you to take today's teachings and apply it to your life. Challenge not only yourself, but those around you. Our support in your journey does not end here. To hear more messages from all our series or to speak to someone to help grow your faith, visit us at branley.org.